0: Welcome back listeners to Season 4 of Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. There's been so much PFAS news since the podcast went on season break at the end of 2020 and that's why today I'm really excited to announce the new plan for Talking PFAS Podcast. To allow me to interview more guests and to bring you more PFAS news from Australia, and the rest of the world, I'm going to be bringing you shorter PFAS news episodes about 10 to 12 minutes long every fortnight. These will be published on a Monday. I'm really excited about this change and I hope that you are too. These episodes will be called Talking PFAS News and I will be looking back through 2020 and 2021 for PFAS News and sharing this with you. But don't worry, listeners, for those of you who enjoy and perhaps prefer the longer, more detailed interview-style chat, you will still get to hear one of these about every six weeks. These episodes will be called Talking PFAS Features with the name of my featured guest and their city and country. I'd really like to hear what you think about this change, so please feel free to email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Also with your news. Lastly, as it has been a while since I brought you a new episode, today's Talking PFAS News will be a slightly longer bonus size and it will feature some news that I was given permission to play from Radio Sweden Weekly. Thank you to David Russell and his team for allowing me to play that short piece of audio in today's news episode. Before we go into today's episode of Talking PFAS News, I just want to do a quick recap of some of the guests that we had in Season 3. First we have Episode 18, was an interview with Professor Chris Higgins from the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering in Colorado's School of Mines in the US. This interview took place in Brisbane on the 3rd of March 2020.
1: So the third dimension of complexity, in my view, is the exposure dimension. So most of the time we're focused on drinking water exposures because that's what's in the news, that's what people hear about, it's in my water, it's in my blood, that is entirely true. If it's in your water, it can get into your blood, uh, depending on the, the individual compound. But it's not all about water exposure. We can also be exposed to these compounds through the fish we eat through the milk we drink or the eggs we eat. In some cases, through the lettuce we eat. Uh, Some of the compounds that accumulate in your fish don't accumulate in your lettuce, but the compounds that accumulate in your lettuce don't accumulate in your fish. So you can be exposed through a wide variety of foods that you might consume, so it's not just the water, but it's also, we work and and live in environments where these coatings have, have been present, and we still don't quite understand how use of these compounds in consumer products necessarily translates to kind of exposure or your your fast food wrapper how does that get into you if it's in your fast food wrapper but we do know that there's this these associations which are pretty commonly found between eating things like fast food and elevated levels in your blood so when you think about the uh, complexity in terms of exposure It's not just your drinking water, it's not just the food, it's the materials the food come in, and there may also be additional sources of exposure that we just haven't understood yet.
0: Then we had episode 19 with Lisa Marie Toms from the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, recorded on the 17th of February 2020. Lisa has been involved in the human biomonitoring in Australia, looking at a range of contaminants in human blood including PFAS. The strength of our work on PFAS is our human biomonitoring program and the fact that we have consistently been collecting these samples, which has enabled us to look back in time to a time before there was awareness community or government awareness of PFAS and we really hope that we can continue that collection analysis and archiving of our blood samples so when and if there is something else of interest of you know interest to the community interest to the government that we can then use those samples and and hopefully provide some um, worthwhile information. And then we had episode 20 Dr Paul Birch the science director of land and water CSIRO in Brisbane. This was recorded on the 18th of February 2020, and he discusses the work that CSIRO have done on PFAS in Australia.
2: Well, we've been mainly involved in looking at the fate transport of PFAS contaminants in the environment. And, and really what we're interested in is developing models to predict the transport, developing models to predict how it's partitioned in soil, you know, how it moves in groundwater And then how is it taken up by um, eco-receptors? Again, we don't really work uh, in the human health uh, domain, but we do work with eco-receptors, which would be organisms in the environment that might be impacted.
0: Such as? Could you give us an example of some of those eco-receptors?
2: Oh, they could be anywhere from fish uh, to microorganisms uh, to birds. So it's really looking at a whole host of eco-receptors.
0: Even earthworms, right?
2: Yeah, earthworms are a big one. And so I've done a lot of work, for example, uh, in my career looking at earthworms as an as a important ecoreceptor, mainly because they, as you know, live in the soil, but they also ingest soil.
0: And then chickens eat the earthworms and then produce the
2: eggs. Yeah, that's right. And, and you may know that one of the major PFAS sources in food is actually eggs.
0: Because of the protein, right? Because PFAS love proteins, correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Where again, uh, traditionally the paradigm of organic contaminants was normally thinking about those organic contaminants partitioning to lipids, which would be the fat tissues. Mm-hmm. Whereas PFAS has very unique properties in that it partitions to uh, protein.
0: My last episode was looking at secondary exposures in wastewater treatment plants, landfill leachate, biosolids that then might be mixed as a sewage sludge and go back to agriculture in compost or recycled water. There's researchers in Australia doing work now on PFAS in recycled water and the impacts of that for irrigation. So these areas don't seem to be getting much attention at the moment. Do you think they deserve more?
2: Oh uh, absolutely and I, and I think um, one of the things you mentioned the biosolid uh, pathway is a very important one. We've seen that for a number of uh, recalcitrant contaminants that end up in, through the wastewater treatment plant, partitioned to the solids, and in many places of the world, about 60% of biosolids are used in agricultural systems, much less here in Australia, but uh, in Europe and North America, for example, about 60% of biosolids are land applied in agricultural systems. And so looking at how they might move up the food chain is quite important to defining human exposure.
0: And next we have episode 21, Professor Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science in Stockholm University in Sweden.
3: I am concerned that they are a very diverse class of substances because the definition of PFAS is very broad. So you end up capturing a lot of substances, thousands of substances, and they are very diverse in their behaviour. And most people know about PFAS and PFOA, and the hexane sulfonate, the, these are the famous ones studies in Australia, but there are thousands of other substances and most people don't know about these. And they are diverse and they, they have all sorts of behaviour. Some of them are toxic and some of them practically are not toxic. Some of them will accumulate in your body and some will not, but all of them are persistent. They're either stable themselves or they break down into substances which are stable in the environment. And they're really stable. They redefine environmental stability because we don't even know if they will break down at all because they degrade so slowly. So there'll be an environment for, we don't know how long, centuries. That is a big concern in itself because... If you release something into the environment which shouldn't be there, which is you know, made by us, mankind, or you know, they're synthetic and they're released into the environment, they shouldn't be there, and they don't degrade, and then they will accumulate. They will continually accumulate, and eventually they'll reach a, a level where they will cause an effect, what which we might know about, or it could be an unknown effect. And then when we do discover that, there's not much we can do to actually take the contamination out of the environment again. It's there, you know, for good. You can't reverse it. So that I think is is my concern about the class it's not really sustainable to use these kind of substances so we have to really think about alternatives
0: and then we had episode 22 Juliana Gluge from Zurich Switzerland discussing her paper called an overview of the uses of PFAS and there are many PFAS uses listed in that paper that you might find surprising
4: yeah it took me around 1 year so i started last summer and i finished it this summer
0: why did you and your colleagues want to write this paper?
4: At the beginning, we had the, uh, from the Federal Institute of the Environment in Switzerland, they wanted us to look into case studies to find alternatives to uh, PFAS users. So I started to look in these alternatives and then I realized there are so many users which we were not aware of. So colleagues of mine suggested, can you put all these users that you found together And so that we have a list with the users. So I started with a small list and it got longer and longer. And at the end, yeah, it took me a year to put everything together. And I think it's now an important work, but it's also was a lot of work to put this all together. And how many users did you find for PFAS? So we found over 200 users and I identified over 1,400 chemicals that have been applied in these users. Now
0: to today's episode of Talking PFAS News. Now to news from Michigan. In the National Law Review article dated 28th of April 2021, written by Boston Attorney John Gardella of CMBG3 Law, he details information about a PFAS paper mill settlement. I'm just going to read you a little bit from that article, and then I'm going to cross to a discussion that I had with John Gardella. Just a few days ago, an $11.9 million settlement was announced in a Michigan lawsuit in which a class of approximately 3,000 plaintiffs alleged that a PFAS manufacturer and a PFAS using paper mill contaminated drinking water supplies, thereby polluting the environment and placing nearby citizens at increased risk of adverse health effects. The PFAS paper mill settlement is noteworthy, not because it is yet another settlement by 3M., one of two prominent chemical companies that manufactured PFAS, but because a business that used PFAS in its manufacturing process found itself yet again needing to settle a costly lawsuit for actions that took place over the course of several decades. John says companies of all types, not just paper companies, must understand that this is but one representative example of the type of lawsuits that we have predicted will have significant impacts on company financials as awareness of PFAS issues continues to grow. These impacts will be felt well beyond industries that use PFAS directly in their manufacturing processes and companies of any type must take a closer look at current or legacy PFAS issues that may plague them in the near future. Here's Attorney John Gardella from Boston to tell us more.
5: So the paper mill one that just settled not just a few days ago was brought in the state of Michigan. And what had happened in uh, Michigan is that there was a paper mill that had been there for almost uh, actually over 100 years. And for many of those years, they were manufacturing paper products that were coated uh, with PFAS so that they could become oil and grease resistant. Now, Pursuant to all applicable and allowable licenses and permits at the time in the state, the company had a landfill nearby on an adjacent piece of land that it owned where it would dump the waste from the paper manufacturing process, including sludge and other byproducts that went into the manufacturing process. Now, over time, the problem was that that landfill, when it was created decades ago, was not lined in any way. So the PFAS leached over time from the landfill into the nearby waterway. The town was relatively small. It was about 3,000, 3,500, I believe, citizens, brought a lawsuit not too recently, two years ago, saying that the PFAS were at astronomically high levels, well above the limit that the state had set, and that the owner of the landfill was responsible Polluting the environment and that the citizens were entitled to damages. So that one recently settled for 11.9 million US dollars.
0: Attorney John Gardella also wrote another article in the National Law Review dated the 22nd of April 2021. On the 7th of April 2021, Alaska's Attorney General filed a lawsuit against over 30 companies seeking damages for PFAS pollution to the environment throughout the state. While the complaint seeks damages from pollution related to only two of the thousands of PFAS, in this case, PFOA and PFOS, the damages alleged are nevertheless likely to be in the hundreds of millions for remediation. The Alaska PFAS lawsuit will be closely watched by both states who are contemplating suing for PFAS remediation and companies who either manufactured PFAS or utilised PFAS as part of their manufacturing process. While the lawsuit targets a narrowly tailored set of companies, lawsuits in other states have already demonstrated that downstream commerce corporations are at risk of being involved in lawsuits seeking hundreds of millions of dollars. Here's John to explain a little more about the Alaska lawsuit.
5: In the United States, every state has an attorney general, which you can think of sort of like as the top attorney for the state. And they are tasked with the responsibility of representing the state's interests so they can bring lawsuits as they did in Alaska that they believe will protect the citizens of the state as a whole. And in this lawsuit, uh, which is very recent, the state of Alaska, as you said, it brought suit against 30 different companies. And two of them are predictable they are the manufacturers of PFAS, 3M and DuPont. There are a few distributors of PFAS that 3M and DuPont and some of the other AFFF companies worked with. And then there are the manufacturers of the AFFF products as well. So, you know, the intent is pretty clear in terms of what Alaska is is going for here. They're going directly towards the PFAS manufacturers themselves and the AFFF manufacturers to collect these damages. Again, Going back to what you and I talked about earlier, Kayleen, that those are really the highest volume dispensers of PFAS to the environment. So the state is looking to essentially collect costs for any past procedures it may have had to take to try and remediate PFAS in drinking water, any present costs that it's currently having to pay out to remediate PFAS or address the PFAS problem, and any future costs that it predicts it will have to take in order to, quote unquote, clean up these state's water issue with respect to PFAS. So they didn't put, and this is typical in the US, they don't specifically seek a dollar value that they absolutely are looking for. They leave that to litigation. So I anticipate that it's going to be obviously the subject of negotiations in the months and years to come.
0: Of note, and John says significantly, Alaska is seeking triple damages. He says in his article, significantly... Alaska seeks triple damages under its state statutes, as well as punitive damages to punish the alleged bad behaviour on the part of the corporations. While the remediation costs alone could be in the hundreds of millions, if Alaska were to prevail on either the punitive damages or triple damages claim, the cost to resolve the matter for the defendants could top $1 billion. John explains.
5: In the U.S., punitive damages, as you said, are ones that are sought to punish very bad behavior. You know, each state has different language that it uses, the standard by which that is judged. But typically it's for intentional behavior or behavior that is just considered to be reckless. You acted just so recklessly that it sort of shocks the conscience. And that's what the state of Alaska is essentially doing. And what it triggers in Alaska and many states in the United States is if you're successful on that claim, if there were to be a jury trial and the jury were to award damages, if the jury were to also say, well, you were also entitled to punitive damages, well, then whatever the jury said the damages were, you essentially triple them.
0: I'll be bringing you the full interview with John in Talking PFAS Features, which we'll publish this week. And the last story on Talking PFAS News today is a story about some Swedish litigation. I'll be playing that audio now for you from David Russell from Radio Sweden Weekly to explain the news.
4: In a
6: landmark ruling on Tuesday, the District Court of Blekinge said that over 160 residents in the small southeastern town of Karlinge, who for decades unknowingly drank tap water contaminated with high concentrations of the chemical compound PFAS, do have the right to compensation. Ulla Engbe has the details.
7: Just over seven years ago, extremely high levels of the chemical PFAS was found in the public drinking water in Kallinge in southern Sweden. It is believed to have come from foam in the fire extinguishers used at the nearby military airbase F-17, where soldiers practiced to put out fires during many years. The chemicals got into the groundwater and the water source for households in Kallinge. The scandal came to light in 2013 and the waterworks were closed. The municipal water company in Kallinger agrees that the water they provided did lead to higher levels of the chemical in the people who drank it. But they have argued that this in itself is not a damage and they have not wanted to compensate people for illnesses it may lead to in the future. But on Tuesday, the court ruled that the increased levels of PFAS in the blood does lead to increased health risks. It said the contamination of the water had led to a lasting change and deterioration of the plaintiffs' bodies, compared to if they hadn't been exposed to PFOS, lowering their capacity to compensate for other types of stress and toxins. The municipal company now has to pay about 7 million kronor for the cost of the trial. The size of the compensation for the plaintiffs has not been part of this ruling. The legal counsel of the municipality told news agency TT that they will have to analyse the verdict to decide whether they will appeal or not.
6: Ulla Engbe reporting. Herman Afselius is one of the 165 residents in Karlinger poisoned by high levels of PFAS. He chairs the Association of Residents, which was formed to fight for the right to compensation. And he joins us now. Um, congratulations! How do you feel? It's two days now since the ruling in your favor. Has it sunk in?
8: Of course, I, I feel really relieved about this. I mean, situation. I mean, we've been struggling since late uh, 2013 about this uh, situation here in in Ronneby, So it's it's a big relief because uh, it's been a real struggle. You know, like David against Goliath. I mean we're talking about the municipality sweden's largest insurance company behind them and so on and also you know the the polluter the the swedish defense so we're talking about a big opponent so it's it's been a a real struggle so of course it's it really feels really really good that the district court finally gave us right in these questions about the uh, but uh, the, the municipality's responsibility against us 165 it's just really it was a really good day i mean it was a day feeling that yes the swedish uh, kind of system works this uh, decision from from the district court i mean it's it's going to affect a lot of people in sweden because many people are paying for their water uh, in their homes. So it's, I mean, it's really, really important. So it's, it's, it's really a good day.
0: Many thanks again to David Russell from Radio Sweden Weekly for the use of that piece of audio in today's episode of Talking PFAS News. And I'll put a link to the Radio Sweden weekly episode where he has a detailed interview with one of the residents involved in the class action, and I encourage you to have a listen. The next episode of Talking PFAS News will be published on the 19th of May, so get in touch if you have some news leads for me regarding PFAS. And you can hear that extended interview with John Gardella, the attorney from Boston that you heard from earlier in the Talking PFAS features on the 6th of May. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please share and contact me for permissions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. See you next time.